2017 podcast, we've started this podcast to explore questions and thoughts about the world, the country, the city that matter to us and require expansive discussion, you know, a little bit more than a tweet, a 500 word opinion piece or a Facebook post. Today we're bringing you our election special following the very exciting UK election result Um, and we will later this summer be bringing you the series. We hope you stick with us for that. Welcome to the 2017 podcast. I'm Rakea. And I'm Hannah. Uh, I'm a writer. Uh, I've been working in higher education for the last few years as a race equality specialist. Um, And I'm just about to start my PhD investigating the impacts of urban regeneration, which I really mean gentrification, on the health and well-being of young people in London. What about you? What do you do, Rakea? Currently, I work in international development, focusing on advocacy. I am particularly interested and invested in girls, adolescent girls specifically, but also children more broadly, exploring how national policies on health, education, well-being and livelihoods and sustainability impact their lives and the actual development of those countries. How are you feeling? What did you think about the result this morning, last night? We were, you know, we were back and forth on uh, WhatsApp because it's so exciting. It's like things you dream of really for a long time. Um, an opportunity, that's what it feels like, an opportunity to do something meaningful, um, yeah, to move forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember this much energy since 1997, if I'm honest, and that was the last time I think I felt moved by an election. I was little, I was young, but I remember the energy in my house um, and I felt that energy today. Um, Last night as well on Twitter, talking to friends, family, but even coming into work. And um, I think, yeah, there is, it's it's not the result that we would have wanted, but um, I think it's the basis of a shift, big shift in British politics, I would say, or hopefully in the national landscape as well. And I think that's really interesting that you talk about that, because I think that therein lies what's interesting about this election is that it really reflects a national shift in terms of the political sphere of this country. Um, and in particular for me, you know, we've often been told when it comes to leftist politics as there's a very particular narrative that you have to pursue, and that's centrism. And here's this guy who came in, and let's just keep it real, we were not entirely... <laughs> keen on him you know we weren't keen on him were we no not at all guilty of that and we weren't keen on him not necessarily because of the politics but the feeling around the execution and really just taking up moments particularly post-brexit so what were your feelings like why were you kind of anti-corbyn it'd be good to yeah you know i spent the morning really reflecting on that because i felt a little guilty you know i saw all those tweets online coming for people who you know especially labor folk who were resistant to corbyn and actually negative about him as a leader um but so I took a moment and sort of thought, what was it I was feeling? What was it about it? Because for me, it was never going to be his manifesto. I'm as left as they get, socialist at heart. Everything he, um, everything he mentioned in the manifesto, the proposed policies, it was about that. Um, but I think that was what the narrative was missing at this point, at, up until yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think what I felt was real disappointment and disheart 
disheartenedness, actually, after Brexit. Um, it was a shock. Brexit was not something that I expected. And I don't think anyone around me from people who were sort of specialist advisors in, in, in whether it's in, you know, economics or um, politics, no one really expected Brexit. And so I think what I felt was let down by Corbyn. Corbyn had, at that moment, still a lot of momentum behind him. Um, and there was controversy. But I think it was you didn't provide effective leadership in that moment. You pandered a bit or fair bit to oh, yeah. <laughs> to around the immigration stuff. Um, and it felt like a vacuum. So I thought, this man is not going to be the person who's going to be able to push this par party forward. This was This is something that's torn the country apart. I agree with you on that. And I really do think with Brexit, you know, here was this moment really where we didn't know um, that this was possible. And, and I'd even hazard a guess and say that people that voted for Brexit didn't think that it would come out with this outcome. And so we really had like a manifestation of really many years of like political malaise and like people feeling like, you know, I'm totally let down by these people. I need to take back control or whatever it was. And almost the rhetoric we were getting before that is that Corbyn is going to respond to that and kind of suck up some of that piece. Um, and I think that's really interesting in terms of yesterday's results in the fact that Corbyn was able to really capture a lot of those drifters when the assumption was that they would all go to the Tories. Um, and so that really kind of disaffected white working class who people thought would automatically vote Tory in many respects didn't and I really do feel like you said it's because when he created the manifesto we were in a moment where finally a vision had been set out um, in terms of what the future could look like around jobs around housing he was honest you know numbers about actually building houses every year even though we're leaving the EU committing us to say we will actually continue to adhere to the things around workers' rights, human rights, um, fair employment, you know, the single market, the customs union, and these pieces that are part of our lives. And, you know, one of the other things that we were thinking around the election that was interesting, obviously, is the response in a city like London, where you had Tory strongholds, big up to Battersea, <laughs> that finally became Labour seats. So we get to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think what's also been conscious in my mind is a constant comparison to America. Mm. And I think some of the stuff that I was really sort of trying to unearth and think about earlier this year when, when Trump got inaugurated, and there was quite a lot of interesting stuff in the US around democracy, full stop. And I remember us having this conversation about um, the lack of authority in people's lives in terms of having making decisions mm -hmm. and making decisions that they see impact mm -hmm. others. And I was trying to figure out what is the difference between this moment right now? Why is this election turned out the way it has? How is Corbyn really galvanised people. And I think there's two things that I think are profoundly interesting for that white working class narrative that keeps coming up that, you know, they're, they're losing out, um, they're losing out to immigrants, they're losing out to other groups, they're losing out on jobs, on, you know, economic policies. Um, and, um, and, what, and one of the things I went to reread again was really about the erosion of civic spaces, right? So places that people 
enacted collective decision making that had impact on those around them. So they weren't making decisions just because policies impact them. It was about how they impact their communities. So trade, the erosion of trade unions, you know, even in terms of local government, um, austerity means that community organisations are really being slashed and stripped back and then public services as well. So, you know, public organisations that have that c capacity. There's a real erosion of everyday kind of reality of making decisions outside of very individual ones. And in a way, I think what's fascinating about Brexit was Brexit was branded as and the referendum was branded as the opportunity that people would have, the first time they would have a voice. But I also think it was the first time in a very long time that they had a voice and also saw the impact yeah. of that voice. Yeah, so what they were then faced with was a government that is and has been unable to really handle and manage um, leaving the EU in a way that inspires confidence, um, but also then also pre presented with a government whose manifesto is very clearly the opposite of their interests and the opposite of the interests of a community outside of being, unless you're white, middle class, upper middle class man, and also who lives outside of the cities because even middle class folk, they can't afford to live in exactly. London now. Um, and I think that for me was something that I was really thinking about today about why some of those shifts might have occurred. Not just the fact that people are, it's not necessarily the cultural na nationalist narrative that they keep being, we keep being told is why white working class folk will vote ultimately for racist people and, and this provides a counter kind of counter narrative we know that we know that people after they voted um, for Brexit realised they'd made the wrong decision once they started to see the implications that it had even when we think of regional economies and the money being exactly. stripped back um, and that they they'd really been you know sent down the garden path with it so and I really think you're right because that's exactly what happened in Britain you know we'd had an absolute erosion of people having a trust in a sense of community and society and trust that their lives can get better you know and I think irrespective of whether people thought um, government should intervene a lot or a little bit the idea is you're supposed to govern for my life to get better and in many parts of this country as a result of like the entire breakdown of manufacturing industries and the inability to reskill many of these communities, they'd seen that for many generations now, their lives haven't got better. And then even when nationally there was a disaster, like the 08 crash, whose lives got better? The already rich. So, you know, this, this thing that I think the elites were able to do successfully around Brexit and try to replicate again with this election is a narrative of feeding into um, anxiety for the about your identity, right? So you're not you don't have jobs, you don't have housing, or you don't have opportunities, not because we've entrenched a whole load of policies that make that nigh on impossible, but because you know, Bradley from Poland has come to take your job or Aneka from Nigeria has come to use your NHS on the cheap. So really, I think what really happened is that we saw a very particular elite feeding in to... Um, a narrative that they saw successful in the States around this economic anxiety narrative, um, as well as something that had been going on for many years post the demise of the British Empire, um, which was kind of that, that sentimental nostalgia for Britain as the main global power. And we know for many reasons that had disintegrated. 
So I think with Corbyn at the beginning, I felt annoyed with when the election cycle, like, why do you not have a position? Do you know what I mean? And I understand you might feel that, you know, certain parts of your constituency aren't for a remain position, but we need something that offers hope and future. And then the manifesto came, right? And in that manifesto, I think he really honestly addressed many of the questions that we have around the future and course of this country. Um, and so, for example, he did note and acknowledge the fact that um, we need to actually increase investment in this country. You know, austerity doesn't work. And, you know, it's not just that word austerity because nobody understands that. It's as useless as the word neoliberalism. But people do understand that, you know, you go to hospitals now and it feels a lot less invested in than it had previously done. Or how I feel, you know, walking down the streets of Brixton and it's so dirty <laughs> because the council can't afford rubbish collections. So in him really hitting that on the head and saying, I'm providing an alternative, I think a lot of the people who would have otherwise gone with the Tories in line with that my identity is under threat narrative realised actually, perhaps there's self-interest in me voting in favour of this man. And I think when looking at the election results, it's not only through um, the seats they got that, that happened, but also thinking about the increases in majorities for the seats they'd already had prior to that. Completely. I completely agree with that. Um, I've got a thought, but I think I'll bring it up a, a little bit later, coming back to some of the stuff, particularly around anti-austerity, but um, actually public goods. And I think it will feature more heavily around, you know, when we start thinking about the future, the questions I have around public services and what does that really mean for the country. But how do you feel about London? <laughs> Such patriotic pride, once again. Like, I feel, just to say now, put it on record, I'm a citizen of London, I really could kind of care less about the rest of this country. And I know you're not really supposed to say say that out loud, but I really do feel like as a child of immigrants, this is the one place actually in the world where I feel quite settled in having all these kind of competing um, identities reconciled in one place. So I feel absolutely like a citizen of London. So I feel so proud that this city just really is invested in an, in a kind of, um, what do we want to call it, a vision that is not stuck in the past. You know, London feels like it keeps moving. I think the election of Sadiq Khan showed that. Um, and it would be great to kind of consider that because here you have this man who, again, mainstream media tell us we should be scared of, has terrorist links, is too left-leaning. Um, Trump actually has time to tweet. To about tw <laughs> yeah. tweet about. And this election, his election really kind of showed the spirit of London. And I think, you know, it'd be good to even consider, as we know, you know, the reality of the terrorist attacks that have also marred this city in the last three months, the two, and the fact that that has not seemed to actually undo that kind of spirit of solidarity and commitment to really moving things forward. And actually, I think there's something in that we have missed out or is missing on in social media responses that I've seen today um, that you've made me think about Sadiq Khan is actually the way that London has galvanised and mobilised around the general election is yeah. also how it galvanised and mobilised around his. Yeah. So it's a, there's an element of continuity there. And I think if 
Sadiq Khan hadn't been mayor of the city and hadn't had such a successful election, yes, actually, yeah. um, in his campaign, would the um, would the Labour results look the same? I'm not sure. I don't know if that's me being a bit sceptical. Not to say that, you know, um, Corbyn's vision and leadership hasn't been galvanising in a whole different way, mm. but... Um, I think it's it's enabled a level of momentum that perhaps would have been much more difficult to to bring up. And the other thing that I've noticed is look at how many black and Asian women um, were, have... were elected. And I'm so happy you said that because just as you're talking, what it really made me think about is this other side of that identity as the main thing that you kind of use as who you are because what Sadiq Khan did and I think even through other elements of this election like Grime for Corbyn is it allowed the voices of these people who are British who are English but who are undoubtedly Londoners to bring those various elements in to say we too need a voice you keep talking about these people have been disenfranchised but we need a voice and we have a voice and the other communities aren't necessarily threatened by that. Exactly. So um, going back to the whole kind of terrorist attacks recently, I thought, I, I mean, for me personally, I was in a state of panic. I thought, this is not good. This is not good for Labour. This is not good for London. This is not good for Sadiq Khan. We've got, you know, in the first instance, it was a couple of weeks. Now it's it was a, less than a week. You know, the election was less than a week away. And yet that had no impact. And Really and truly, I would have thought those MPs who are particularly women of colour, um, Muslim background, Asian women would be the ones who would be most, you know, tarnished by or affected um, by those acts. And actually, we've seen the opposite. So so I, I think in a way, what the success of London shows is that shows white folk <laughs> that they don't have to be threatened by some of these narratives entering the centre. They're not in conflict. Exactly. And it's interesting because I think in a way, whilst London is many things that are great, it's also a real sight of gross, like really crude inequality. But in a way, that also works to the benefit of the organisation of like the progressive left. So take a space like Kensington and Chelsea, where if we're honest, the Labour voters and stronghold just can't afford to live there anymore. So the people who occupy those spaces are um, expats or people who have a second domicile in London, very, very wealthy elites, live in like side by side with these deeply impoverished people. So once you mobilise those people, they have a voice where the other people who are also occupying that space may have absolutely zero interest in engaging civically. So I think really what London shows us right now and an opportunity whilst these questions of inequality are at the fore is that we can organise those people to really respond and take part in civic life and everyday life, but also to ask for more things. And th th that voice doesn't necessarily just come from people who are supposedly the intellectual or um, cultural elite, but also regular folk, you know, young people, I hate that phrase, but <laughs> young people who musicians realised, you know, we can actually mobilise these people in a way to not just vote for Corbyn, but recognise that the state has a responsibility to you and should answer to you. Um, so it's, I'm really proud of Sadiq Khan's leadership or election of London, but 
I think from there, we've got questions that he really needs to answer um, around that gross inequality, around, again, creeping violence um, in this city by working class youth, many of whom are, of course, black, and around what we do to ensure that people continue to feel a sense of ownership in this city and that it responds for everybody. So... I understand, again, around the terrorist attacks, we had to be <clears throat> on, a dis- on a position of defence for Sadiq Khan, like you're not going to come for our mayor. But um, now I think we need to continue mobilising people so that he is forced to respond with work for us. You know, like, what are you going to do now? Because you, you need to make sure at the end of this that you have a legacy that is about empowering and equipping Londoners with more um, investment in our services, Uh, responses around crime, transport, actually making sure that it works for everybody, and housing. And so he's got to be an advocate for the city and demand more if we're going to be able to um, really manifest the thing we want to see with it. And I think that's, there's a, you know, that's that's a cycle as well. So now he can also ask for more because he's backed by a a Labour party that has the capacity to ask for more. You know, it's been legitimised. Those asks have been legitimised. We've seen the Tories crumble, that these are, <laughs> these are things that people really want and need. Um, and in terms of the, the future of this city, I mean, we're now at the brink of, of Brexit. You know, negotiations are meant to start next week, is it? Yeah. And now's the time that we have to start asking those critical questions of what does our city need to look like moving forward, starting from this base of gross inequality, mm-hmm. actually, where we've seen heavy decline in, in recent years, particularly, you know, we see in terms of wages and income, but housing, continuous displacement out of the city where people can't afford to live in it. Um, I wanted to know what you think. So if I was to throw what you think those big asks should be or should look like, it's so exciting, you know, because really here we have an opportunity to reshape the future. So let's go, my absolute dream list. One, a sustainable city, you know, like we need to get to a point where we're looking at the reality of environmental justice as one of social justice. So we need one where the realities of air pollution, <laughs> which really are affecting really poor communities of colour, is at the front and um, centre. So we need one that is promoting sustainability in terms of clean air, one that's promoting sustainability in terms of a circular economy and a local investment, um, one that promotes real alternatives to dirty energy and creates jobs as a result of that, one that really gives a voice for... Um, everybody in this city do you know what I mean so this kind of mobilization of people needs to happen continuously through increased investment in our education system I think that's really important to me and three health but health from both the position of um, prevention and provision of services right so we know for example a lot of people impoverished in London are suffering from issues like obesity um, cardiac arrest um, poor respiratory issues and we really need to address things around that and you know you and I often talk about sustainability what does that look like in terms of food justice as well right so those are some things immediately that come to mind when I think about what a sustainable image of London looks like going forward and that we need our 
leaders to advocate for. What about you? I completely agree with all of that. I mean, you, you know, one of my biggest passions and interests is, is around housing. Mm. Um, and housing has such a huge consequence on everything in someone's life because it determines the environment someone grows up in, the access to services, to food, to healthcare, to education provision. Um, and I mean, one of my biggest asks is how we manage and deal with the housing crisis right. um, and not it simply just be about building more housing because mm -hmm. that's the constant sort of narrative that we hear is the response is about building more houses when actually in London we have housing. It's just not effectively and efficiently used and distributed well enough. And how does a city like London, which has... Um, local issues manage and handle the global interest in London exactly. and I think those are some of the asks that in the in the rise of or in the wake of of Brexit as those negotiations happen is something that our um, mayor has to be accountable for and our councils and you know and so now with the with such a Labour stronghold um, and Definitely, especially with MPs that you think should have an invested interest in equality, um, how they begin to manage that, because I think that for me is a number one priority. It's all good and fair building a sustainable city, but when, how are you going to do that if everyone's moved out? moved out so I mean that was also one of my challenges like you know I, I was really excited about Battersea but I look at Battersea and even Battersea which has was gentrified many years ago is also being regentrified again um, and that's also an interesting pattern in in London specifically that spaces go through gentrification and then they get regentrified again later and you keep seeing that rippling effect um same with tooting you know so um I think that's one of my big asks is really how do we build a city that is for everyone? And it's so interesting you say that because there's another group of people that have to be at the fore of this discussion. And this is about designers, architects and thinking about urban planners and pulling them into this question and discussion around equity and, you know, a sustainable future. Because as you said, it's not just about building houses, but it's about building houses that allow people to participate fully in the life of this city. So it's not about moving people quite out to the outskirts, but expecting them to come in the city and work or putting them in houses that are too small, really, to contain families that could potentially be growing um, without quality materials. So it's also how we bring those really important um, creative thinkers and producers into the future in, of this city. And you really touched on something that I thought was important in the sense that London isn't just British, but it's global, you know? So I think at the same time as thinking about the future of London, it really allows us to think about the future of cities in general. Do you know what I mean? And thinking really about cities as a site of um, innovation in the midst of what feels like the crumbling of the nation state. So really Britain is still in a real site of crisis and chaos, you know, and, and it's not going to change. I mean, we have Theresa May maybe getting into bed with the DUP. Ugh. And then you have somebody like, uh, what's his name, Trump in the States. But in the midst of that, 
you have exciting things happening in Detroit. So Detroit offering artist residencies to the houses that have been boarded up because bringing new industries in gives an opportunity for the rejuvenation of a city. Or you have a mayor here who we're asking to be committed to things like ending air pollution and really making this a safe space in that respect. Or Berlin, that's introducing caps and real regulation in terms of housing, because again, gentrification is coming in and seeding, you know, issues that they hadn't previously had to tackle. So I really do think that really focusing on the city and sustainability gives us an opportunity to draw on the talents and gifts of people we need in those conversations from activists to architects, but also at the same time, draw references from other cities who have very similar patterns to this one. We don't want London to become San Francisco. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that that's the thing, the issues that London are facing are not unique. Exactly. They're issues that cities globally are facing. I think what make what I find or what London has the potential for is um, is the things that it's had that other cities n- not haven't necessarily had. So when we think about council housing and social housing, we think of all the big developments in terms of council estates in the 50s and the 60s. And the, I mean, you mentioned about planners and urban, uh, urban planners and um, top architects from all over Europe, in fact. It was sexy to make council housing because it was considered... Um, it was considered uh, a valuable project. It was considered a, a project that had status and reputation um, and that would allow them to kind of, you know, um, build on their career. Um, and I think in the wake of that, London should be a place that's piloting innovative and sustainable approaches to these things again because we have that basis. And I think this is something that I wanted to bring up earlier when we were talking about even um UKIP and the right um, and then in the context of the US what makes us substantially different is that people have had access um, to public services and public goods relatively high quality ones for a large long large period of their lives so if you have people who grew up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and you think of post-war development and then you think of young people growing up now you know we say well our parents had this and they had access to that and our parents had access to social housing when they moved here. It gave them stability. It gave this next generation stability, free education, um, you know, things like free school, free healthcare, but even after... school dinners. Yes, exactly. And so what's... essentially should be used to move forward is the fact that we had those things before. We're not asking for things that weren't there. Um, And that should really be the basis of London in terms of innovation um, and sustainability is we should be a city that's piloting and being bold and audacious enough to present solutions that the rest of the world doesn't have. And it's so interesting. And that's what would make keep it relevant, even in, you know, to shift away from the imperial kind of narrative and break from its history as as the, you know, centre of the empire. It can still retain global relevance by doing those innovative and exciting things Mm. yeah and it's so interesting you said that and the last reference because that's what i was going to bring up because simultaneously as that has happened in terms of access to social goods and really public goods london has had something that a lot of other cities that we site as progressive hasn't had which is nearly 50 to 60 sustained years 
of integration. Now, of course, that wasn't always peaceful, but that presence of diversity together with a social vision for access to public goods mean that London can offer a future that has reconciled a question that a lot of other European cities are having to grapple with now, which is the presence of people who aren't so-called indigenous, right? And then the thing about London is, as you've noted, that project of building the 50s and 60s, so creating that kind of um, social and public investment and social contract, basically, was built together with those immigrants. So there's a stake that people can take in terms of being brown or being black or being, um, you know, someone from Europe in this city that other cities might not be able to take. So I was thinking about someone like Germany, for example, and the fact that the word escapes me right now, but they have a very specific word, which means visitor. So it's like you've come here and this is what we're referring to as in its visitor. So your time here is limited. That's the anticipation. These communities are entirely um, homogenous, right? But that kind of heterogeneity that London has had for at least 60, 70 years also gives it the opportunity to be a beacon in the way that you've um, expressed. Because one of the things I think is causing friction in a lot of cities right now or places in the world is how do we reconcile that question of diversity and difference, right? And the allocation of social goods in what feels like a time of really limited resources. And I think London has the opportunity to bring that question out and offer, as you said, solutions about that, right? So there's a very pure and kind of pointed history um, in the progression of this city that can be pointed to from an Asian community, from an African community, from a Caribbean community, increasingly from Latin American communities and now European communities, and that helps to build it. And so it's kind of trite and cliche, but London is truly global um, and as a result of Britain's past, it has always been. So as well as offering innovation in terms of what a social and sustainable future looks like, like there is the opportunity in terms of what a diverse um, and culturally rich um, city looks like um, in a way in which everybody's kind of contributed, which is exciting. Since we've been praising London so much, I thought I would mention an event that I went to on Tuesday, actually, at the London Review Bookshop with Paul Beattie. Um, it was him in conversation talking about the sellout and it was so interesting. Um, I think it was interesting just because he's now been positioned as a writer who writes about race. He's a race writer um, and he was hilarious in the sense that he wanted to dodge and shift all those questions, partly because um, I think he finds it funny. <laughs> he finds it funny um, but it also just made me feel like people miss a lot when they put the onus on race. And The Sellout was a book that was about race, but it was also about a lot of other things. Um, what I found really interesting was in another interview he'd done, he talked about how he wrote that book thinking about what if he had never le left L.A.? Mm. How would he experience that area that he lived? The segregation, the gentrification, um, the inequality, um, the kind of frictions and conflicts between intellectual blackness and, you know, um, and yeah, and just being. Um, and none of that was really necessarily brought out in the, in the, interv in the interview that um, I saw the conversation he had the other day. Um, 
but it did read in everything about his body and his and his language um and we often just don't give writers the room to just write about things that are funny, are difficult, are painful, um, that are personal. He talked about suicide, for example. A lot of his books have always have a character that commits suicide. And um, when people want to refer to it in terms of sort of um, kind of post-traumatic syndrome, when really what it was was people around him who'd killed themselves and him trying to navigate and understand and experience that. So I always find it really interesting hearing writers talk about their work because I think there's more in what they don't say than what they do say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the converse, uh, the questions really shape the conversation. Um, but it was it was it was interesting to hear to hear him talk about his work and also his wife. I think he just got married and he seemed so in love. So he just kept talking about his wife every like five minutes. And I thought that's really sweet. (laughs) So it's, um, I'm also actually reading Paul Beatty's first novel and the name really escapes me at the moment, um, which is, but it's really, 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 really funny. Um, It's a really, really funny book. But that's not what the thing, or that's not the thing I want to talk about today. I just started listening to Scissors' album. Oh, me too. Me too. And, yo, the first time I listened to it, I, was, it, I have to be real honest right now, it made me feel quite uncomfortable. I thought, oh my gosh, this woman is really just putting it out here. Right? And then Why uncomfortable? I, I don't know, I just felt like, I listen to a lot of music that's pretty mindless or from the past that's really about nostalgia. But I felt like this woman is really describing the realities of, like, the millennial relationship letdowns you know and it she just lays it out there and um I listened on the way here to her song The Weekend and honestly I just thought wow this woman's got a gift but not only does she have a gift but she's really talking about something that I think we need to kind of have a discussion probably another time but like this inability to forge relationships, but that longing for love and um, validation and commitment, affection, sex remains. Do you know what I mean? And she just articulates that desperation that many of us feel as women so well together with like sometimes the audacity and just lack of care that these dudes show. I mean, I listened to it too. I haven't listened, I didn't get around to listen to the whole thing, but most of it. And um, I think I tweeted saying it's for the messy, kind of messy of us. Like we're all messy, right? And um, and she captures that desire, but also the neediness and the insecurity. I thought, wow, you're insecure and you're so comfortable sharing it to the whole wide world because you are insecure. Um, And then you obviously see her images on the internet and on Instagram and you can see that confidence is something that she's really had to learn um, and has probably been betrayed a lot in terms of her relationship with men um, and having to constantly rebuild yourself. I think as a woman, um, you get you're you're shamed in into the in 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 terms of if you feel insecure after that stuff happens but you know something else and you feel needy right so something else that struck me that i thought was so kind of unique to this album is it feels like now do you know what i mean so through history of r&b there are moments and tracks that talk about that you know i was really thinking of like shanta he's mine and you know and i thought to myself but this just feels so much like 
now, you know, so it's really something that you'll see a lot of her fans and I'm sure a lot of us listeners be like, yes, girl, you're really describing something that I um, resonate with and I've experienced. Um, and in a way, as you said, that's really, really honest, you know, and way we don't really necessarily talk about so there is this thing of like down with the fuck boys but it's almost like oh my gosh but I still want him you, you know and I think she really um describes that in a way that allows us to just all be a little bit more real about that reality so yeah I'm listening to SZA <laughs> That brings us to the end of today's 2017 election special. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion. We want this to be interactive. So please do share your thoughts, your questions, topics or things you'd like us to discuss or exciting things you have seen too. You can find me on Twitter at Rakea Sarumi. And I'm also on Twitter um, under Hannah Riaz. We look forward to bringing you the rest this summer. Ciao. Oh, 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 o